Welcome to Radical Connectivity with Dr. Kelly Donahoe, where we dig deep, get messy, and work towards connecting more deeply with the people around us. So come on in, pull up a chair, get comfy, and let's just get started. Welcome. Hi, today on Radical Connectivity, I was super lucky to get to sit down for a talk with Brian Broom. If you don't already know him, please look him up. He has the website brianbroom.com and you can find all of his writings there. Uh, So Brian is a writer. He is very insightful, funny. He has sort of a gorgeous, uh, clear, cutting wit about him. And he's the kind of person that when I read his writing makes me feel like, oh, okay. The way that I see the world is shared by someone who I really respect and it makes me feel good, even if what he's talking about is incredibly serious and deep and important, like race, sexuality, addiction, substance use, culture, politics, etc. Brian recently wrote a book called Punch Me Up to the Gods, a memoir which you can find and pre-order on amazon.com. It's also on goodreads.com, etc. So go ahead and look that up. You can pre-order it everywhere. And he also wrote the screenplay for a short film called Garbage that I recently watched. And it was so beautiful, poignant and moving. It really was gorgeous. If you have a chance to look it up, it's called Garbage and it's quite an extraordinary a piece of work. So without further ado, let us start listening in on our conversation. I should let you know it starts a little right in there because we were speaking for a long time, maybe five minutes and until finally Brian said, "Um, hey Kelly, do you want to start recording? So you'll hear us laughing and uh, we just get going right to it. Last thing I want to mention, I promise, We recorded the episode the week before the election. So we talk about it a little bit and it'll be curious for you listening to hear our thoughts before it happened. So dig in, cuddle up, enjoy. Here we go. (laughs) We could go. That's okay. It's okay. The universe did that for a reason. Nobody nobody wants to hear my political opinions anyway. Maybe nobody wants to hear anyone's right now. Maybe that's what the universe is saying. I just hope things I just hope that things work out for the best politically next week and you know we can just go from there. You know where I am right now? Hmm. I'm developing alternative universe realities where I'm fantasizing that we take every idea that we've come up with about identity about race, sexuality, every every marriage, all of it. We throw it all on the table and and we invite everyone to the table and then we go what works, what doesn't work and we start carving away and that's my fantasy life right now. But to do that we have to take apart a lot of stuff that people are holding on yeah, real tight. I was going to say that really is a fantasy because, you know, Thanks. I mean, I'm talking right now with my students about just cognitive dissonance and people's worldviews. I mean, it's very important for people to have this view of the world 
you know, mm-hmm. that cannot be assailed. Like they have to, this has to be true or else what they fall into this place of confusion and distress. So they hold on to it, you know, you know, that people do it with their religion. People do it with their, you know, socioeconomic status. People do it with how they think about other people. You know, the brain wants to break things down into black and white. Mm-hmm. And we all know things are much more complicated and nobody wants to deal with that complexity. You know, myself included sometimes like um, this is where all of this stuff comes from. People need to see the world in a particular way and they need for everything around them to affirm that belief in every way or else they get uncomfortable. They get angry. Sometimes they get violent. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, they're scared. I, d- I do think that feeling of scarcity is so dangerous. Mm-hmm. I feel like at, at base, what what the whole milieu of what the world is talking about right now is, is there enough or isn't there enough? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, it feels like it's just in the air. Yeah. Do you want to believe there's enough and we can figure out a way to make it work or are we just like protecting our pile? Yeah. Everybody's protecting their pile and, you know, and, and piles is not just money. It's pile of security. It's pile of superiority. It's pile of power. Like, that's, you know, everybody wants to feel secure in the world. And when they don't, you know, for whatever reason, they get, like you said, afraid. And oftentimes fear begets anger and oftentimes anger begets violence. And that's where we are now. And it's all pretty naked right now with a president who um, really kind of thrives on that fear and exacerbates it. So again, I'm just hoping, fingers crossed, like next week, things get rectified. If not, then we'll have to deal with what, what ensues. Yeah, we will. I don't think we're going to know. Do you think we're going to know? Know what? The results. We probably won't know. Um, you know, I mean, I just have this feeling it's going to be dragged out, you know, just to make me more miserable. Um, it's all because of you, Brian. It is. I think they have, there's a concerted effort to just make me as anxious and jumpy as possible. No, I, I don't think we're going to know on the third. Was it the third? Yeah. I think it'll probably take a few weeks before anything is really decided. But, you know, I don't know. If the polls are to be believed, we're in good shape. But we thought that again in 2016. I remember in 2016, I just remember this so clearly. I My polling place is, is right down the street. Like I walk to it. Mm-hmm. And I just remember walking there like, you know, I just remember, and I and I and I may be making this up. Jaunty walk, yeah, a jaunty walk. I was almost skipping, like <laughs> you know. And it was just, and in my head, I don't even know. I don't know what kind of day it was, but in my head, it was this beautiful sunny day, and the birds were chirping, and there was change in the air, and there was going to be the first woman president. And I was, I remember just walking like this, you know. And then, of course, later that night, it just terror set in, like. Uh, but I, I just remember how arrogant I was about how the world had changed and in my favor, you know, but we got a real dose of cold water in the face uh, about how bad things can get. Or maybe not even how bad things can get, but, you know, that things could get bad. So I hope we don't have that arrogance again this term and I hope things change. I want to stop here and talk for a second about the whole snowflake thing. First of all, I love snowflakes. I love snow. I'm a polar bear. But why were people so upset in 2016? And what does that have to do with politics or the president? I want to try to 
talk about that for a minute. And I think the simplest way to do that is I want you to imagine that the person, that there are two people running for president of the United States and that one of them has a history of and said a lot of things that were negative about you. If you're a woman, that was true of Trump. But also, if you were a person of color, there was a long history of policies that impacted people of color that he had worked with. You know, believe me, you can look that up. As well as things that he had said over time that were racial slurs. So here's the thing. You know, I've heard a lot of people say this, and I've said it before on this podcast, and I've said it before in videos and everywhere that I talk. You know, I hear mostly white people saying, well, I don't agree with how he talks, or I don't agree with what he says. But I'd like you to imagine that he was saying those things about you, and if he was saying those things about you, that that you realize that what the president said impacts policies and that policies impact our lives. So that's the official reason, right, that people would care that the president impacts policymaking and policy impacting and policies impact people's lives. Then there's the second piece, which is the part that's more sort of slippery socially thing, right? How we talk, how we present ourselves and what is acceptable to us as a culture, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, and whether we even want it to be this way or not, we look to our leaders. That's how human beings are. We look to the people who are in positions of power for guidance in many ways for the emotional tone of the country. This is basic leadership 101. So it matters when someone in leadership uses racial slurs, doesn't speak appropriately, and doesn't say overtly, I don't feel that way. I don't support that. I will work against that, right? So it's so far from anti-racism. Well, I mean, it's it's the other end of the continuum, right? It's passive racism, sexism, and that is why it mattered. You know, if you've listened to this podcast before an election, baby Tanisha and I talked a lot about that insipid racism that many of us hadn't seen before the 2016 election. We felt that, oh, it's not there anymore. We've moved past it as a culture, as a society. But then realized that if people were willing to support a candidate with their vote, which is a very powerful thing, regardless of how he had spoken about people of color, about women, that racism was just right there under the surface all the time. And I hear a lot of people saying, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, I don't support that, but you did. A vote is a very supportive thing. And it is racist to use that language. And it is racist not to say, that's not okay. We're not gonna talk like that. We're not gonna be like that. We're gonna change these systems. So they're more supportive of everyone. That's why people cared. Because we, we are in a place of inequality right now in many ways, in many systems. And to have someone as a leader who isn't working towards equality, but instead says things like everybody's equal, everything's fine. And then also adds racial and sexist slurs and policies over the last four years, although you know we saw it coming, but we didn't know, that impact people that are people of color and every different type of person who might be in a minority, sexuality, you know, people that are experiencing poverty, all policies that impact people in negative ways. It's curious how 
they could support him in the future. And also say that they are working in their lives towards equality. That's why you're doom scrolling. That's why I'm doom scrolling. Doom scrolling just in my phone. Like literally I'll I'll be doom scrolling and you know, I'll start and then mm-hmm. I'll look up and like 90 minutes have gone by. And I'll say to myself, like, I just spent 90 minutes of my life going down a rabbit hole of terror, just terrifying myself. Um, cortisol, the cortisol hole. Is that what it is? I mean, yes. Can I just say, not as your therapist, but as a therapist, first of all, I need people listening to know that your cup says gigantically the boss, which is is amazing. Um, No, I have to say this to you. First of all, Brian, stop. I know you didn't ask for my opinion, but that (laughs) is not making anything better. No. It's you're bathing yourself in a shitty cortisol shower. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like I know on an intellectual level that it's bad for me and that it does no good. I do not know what the attraction is. I don't know. I think I do. You're trying to divine something. I well, not from a non-sort of medical standpoint, right? Like um, it feels like I'm trying to divine something. Like I'm like I'm panning for gold. You know in a sewer, you know, and if I just keep doom scrolling long enough, I will find a nugget of something that is going to make everything all right. It, it no. never happens. No, no, no. In fact, what's happening. Is, okay. So I, I want to talk about coping skills. Okay. This is because this is a perfect. So my theory is that people are doing the deep dive, knowing they're going to only turn up shit. Uh, because it's a way of, it's a defense mechanism to protect self against what might happen, right? This time we're going to be ready. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be caught unawares. I'm going to, I'm going to be ready. And so that's protective, right? People are doing it. Everyone's doing it. So what's happening is though, we're getting filled up with cortisol, which is terrible does no good, makes everybody feel bad. For the past four years, did you you ever see Ghostbusters? Of course. Okay. So do you remember the pink sludge that was all in the everywhere? That is what is filling up the place right now, that pink sludge. And every time we go down that rabbit hole, we add to the pink sludge. Yeah. Like I say, I know I'm going to try to stop. I think that, you know. No, you're not. No, I'm not. But no, I think that what I'm going to do is, I mean, I frequently unplug my social media uh, when it gets to be too much. I think we're about at that point right now, just for, you know, just until the election is over. Because me, like, trying to, wasting, you know, I was like, really, that was like 90 minutes, two hours sometimes my life and it becomes addictive. Like you go put the phone in another room, you make sure the laptop's not near you, you go try to do something, clean your kitchen. And then you're, you know, an hour goes by and you're like, I wonder if I missed anything, you know? You did. You missed a lot of arguments online. online. And this, I mean, this is the same thing I teach my students not to do. And there I am doing it. So hypocritical teacher. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what we all do. If you're listening to this, I'm going to beg you to separate from 
the things that give you cortisol. I'm going to talk for a minute about what cortisol is. So important. Cortisol is the stress hormone that our bodies and our central nervous system uses to alert us to danger. It's extremely important, and thank goodness we have it. However, your body doesn't know the difference between a bear is going to eat your face, and I've been scrolling on social media, and I have all kinds of feelings about it, and I feel in danger and worried. There's a lot of worry, concern for the future. Everyone is feeling it. It doesn't matter how you feel about politics or anything. There's a lot going on, right? We're in the midst of a pandemic. Some people are reacting to it by pretending it's not there, right? I mean, we're all managing it in different ways. So I'm asking you as a psychologist, as a therapist, but again, not yours, to take a minute and when you're about to sort of mindlessly go on social media, as you would any other thing in your life, I will ask you to think, is this going to make me feel better or not? And if it's not, do something else instead. Look around, take a walk, read, whatever your go-to coping skills are. And if you don't have a go-to coping skills list, we can talk about that later. That's a great thing to do because in the moment, it's so hard to come up with alternatives because we do what we're used to doing, especially when we're stressed or we need a release or an escape. So in that moment, when you go to, you know, do the things on your phone, isn't it funny how we all sort of have that pattern that we do? For me, I check messages, then I check email, and then I check Instagram. I don't have Facebook on my phone for, for these very reasons, but I would check it next if I did. So that's, you know, I had to sort of take it off there. You do what you have to do, but I'm telling you that that cortisol cruising through your veins isn't good for you on a very deep physiological level. And it's giving you headaches and stomach aches and making you feel bloated and all sorts of terribleness. And so take a minute, think about something that could instead give you some of those great feeling hormones. Take a walk, get some endorphins, have sex, cuddle up, read a book, whatever makes you feel good. Watch Great British Baking Show. I don't know what it is for you, but find those things and slowly replace over time, right? Like I have to go on social media for work and, and I try to limit it. Social media can be great, but it can also be too much. And so whatever it is for you, that doom scrolling or going down the rabbit hole, whatever, please, please take care of yourself and find ways to control it versus just doing it out of habit. And that's true for everything, right? That we do that isn't so awesome for us, but we do it out of habit. So, I mean, wouldn't it be great if we all didn't do that? Yes, of course, we all do those things. I'm just asking you, keep an eye on it. And if you want to alter it a little bit, do it. So tell me, what coping skills do you, what do you do? What do you do when things are yucky? Wow, this is a really good question because, I mean, I think it's, I think it's uh, important to note that I am in recovery from drugs and alcohol uh, in December, I'll be so it'll be seven years. Mm-hmm. And in that seven years, like, I don't know that I have found a coping skill that is as good as drugs and alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Now, when I say good, I mean, immediately effective, mm-hmm. you know, I always say that like when I was, you know, and a lot of the reasons why I drank and did drugs was because I was anxious, anxiety. I had undiagnosed anxiety. And I think a lot of African-Americans do uh, more than um, 
than we're accounting for, I think, nationwide. But, you know, I remember just taking that first drink would feel like, you know, like a picture, a, a pile of leaves on fire, right? That's what my anxiety felt like. And just pouring that drink down my throat felt like somebody just dumping a giant bucket of water on that leaf fire. You know, it was immediately effective. I have not found anything that was that effective yet. As far as my coping skills now, they aren't as immediately effective, but they do work running. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. went out and I spent a cute penny, as my mother would say, (laughs) on a treadmill. So I run, um, which also, it makes me feel better. I listen to music and I think that's about it, you know? Why am I asking Brian about coping skills? So first, let me tell you a little bit about how I conceptualize coping skills. To me, if you imagine a continuum of all the coping skills that are available to us on Earth, and a coping skill is anything at all that you do to help you get through. So when you have an intense emotion, use one of these tactics to help stop the emotion. Sometimes the stopping, right, the coping skill that we use can actually make things worse than the actual problem, and sometimes it helps. So the way that I think about coping skills isn't good or bad, more like more or less helpful. Does it make the emotion more tolerable and at the same time not add additional problems to your life? So I'd like you to think for a second about what you do when you feel intense emotions. And I will name some things for you that people use and you likely employ some of them in your life, right? So there's the ones that we all talk about. So Brian just mentioned some of them, they're great. Running or exercise, um, you know, work, connecting with friends. There's also drinking, all the drugs. Any substance that we use to help us get through eating, not eating, overdoing things, underdoing things, focusing with zero, you know, zeroing in on our work in a way that stops us from being able to connect with other people in our life. You know, a lot of strong emotions can come in, um, being irritable, having a difficulty focusing on our work, which is opposite, obviously, from over-focusing on our work or somewhere in between. People sometimes will uh, cut themselves. That's a coping skill. Everything that we do to deal with the events in our life, both helpful and less helpful, are coping skills. It is very important to know what our coping skills are, how and when we use them, and if they're working for us or not. That's a lot of the work of therapy is, what are are your coping skills? What do you do when, when the shit hits the fan? And then, How does that impact your life? Is that impacting your life in a way that makes things better or makes things harder? So I'd like you to think about that. The last time that you felt intense emotions, stress, you needed to cope in some way. What do you do? What are your go-to coping skills? Are they working for you or are they making things harder for you? And then if you're in a place where you feel like, yeah, it's pretty good, which good for you. There's always room for improvement, but you know, awesome. But most of us can stop and think, okay, you know what, for me, I'll tell you, I get irritable when I, when I need to be employing my coping skills, my go-to coping skills, exercise, talking to friends, you know, cooking. I have all of these coping skills. Some are effective, some are less effective. Sometimes I have wine. Sometimes I'll have um, 
too much food, right? Like, you know, or that is the way that I operate because of my history and my way of being in the world. And I know some of them are more helpful than others and I work through those. So what I'm asking you to do is if you have a minute or take a minute later, write down the last time or when you often feel stressed and what you do for your coping skills. Try to do it without judgment. If you can, I know it's hard, but judgment doesn't generally help. Then take a look at that list and see if those coping skills are working for you. Do they make your life better? Or do they sometimes add difficulty? So here's an example of something that might not be working for you. You get super angry and you put anger in charge and you act rashly to stop the emotion. You know, I've worked with a lot of college students and something people do is just unfollow everybody on their social media that is upsetting them. Well, in the moment that might work, and that is sometimes a super healthy coping skill, taking a break from social media as we just talked about, or you know, changing the list of people that you see so that you feel more positive and engaged rather than feeling yucky. But what I'm talking about is just cutting, right? Rah, 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 rah. A lot of times then people are left having to go fix that the next day. So anytime you have to go back and fix something, it is a lot of stress making your life harder. So I just want you to think about your coping skills and how they're working for you. Try not to judge them. If you need a little help with some of those skills, like you feel like I don't know, that's not working for me, right? The obvious one, I'm, I'm drinking too much, but there's also the less obvious ones. Like, oh, you know what? When I employ that coping skill, it's actually not that great for me. And I could clean that up a little bit or change it or tweak it. You can either talk to a therapist or friends I would usually give great insight, right? Like, oh yeah, you do that. And, you know, can you help me? You know, that's something that we, we often do in my life. I talk to my friends and say, I'm trying to do this. When you notice I'm doing it, and I'd like to change it to be this way. Can you help me out? A partner is a great person to talk to you about these things too. So good luck with your coping skills and enjoy exploring them. What a great way to help ourselves live better lives. Moving from discussion of coping skills into how we have relationships with our emotions. So Brian and I are gonna talk about coping skills throughout our time together. But we're also gonna talk about how working with your emotions, in this case specifically, mostly anxiety, uh, and what kind of relationship do you have with your emotions? So let's hear about that. I'm a writer, so a, bit, a little bit of anxiety kind of helps me professionally. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Uh, so I write it away sometimes, but I am just, I think, saddled with the reality that I'm just kind of going to always be on a low hum of anxiety. As long as I'm sensate, like I'm constantly, it seems like my brain is constantly wired to be looking for what's wrong. Maybe oh, so that's your version of anxiety. I was going to ask you that. Looking, looking, um, scanning. Yeah, I scan. I scan for things to be worried about. You know, there are times when I can quiet my brain and like just kind of relax. They're very few and far between. But for the most part, I am never relaxed. And I haven't found in that, in my seven years of sobriety, a way to make that happen. You know, it used to be have a drink or a few dozen drinks and then, you know, how can you be anxious after that? You can't. Mm. But I haven't found the key to just 
the absolute key to, to coping yet. It's not as bad as it was, but it could be better. But a lot of, a lot of running. I run for an hour every day. I don't think there is a key. Yeah, I think, if, I think life, and you know, this sounds really maudlin, but I think life is just kind of difficult. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes me think of Buddhists, that class, like th- that pillar of Buddhism, you know, life is suffering, which I used to fight against, think like, oh, I'm, not that I'm Buddhist, I would like to be, but I, I don't even know enough to be Buddhist, but I, I think about that, right? Mm. When it's, when it's good, really suck it up because we, we do, we get this idea. We all, I, I mean, most people that I've ever spoken to that things are supposed to be good. Mm-hmm. And that you're supposed to be happy all the time. You know, yeah. I realize now that happiness is, is a condition. Like it, you know, it comes and it goes. I remember when I was a kid, um, I used to, you know, everybody was a kid. They used to tell their parent, like, I can't wait till I grow up. You know, <laughs> my mother used to look look at me like, yeah, you know, just you yeah. wait. And I always thought she was talking about, you know, bills and, you know, and, and having to go to work. I mean, I was uh, in a lot of ways like raised by television. I was watching these TV shows where people went to work and nobody was really actually doing any work. Like, you know, yeah. these sitcoms, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought work was. Moonlighting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like nobody was doing any work in these shows. They were flirting. Yeah, they were flirting and hooking up and like, you know, uh-huh. going to cocktail parties. I was like, yeah. what is she complaining about? But I remember my mother used to say like, when you grow up, you will realize that it's not all it's cracked up to be. And I just used to think she was being dramatic. But she wasn't really talking about bills and she wasn't really talking about work. What she was talking about is the knowledge that people are cruel, mm-hmm. that there is inequality, that there are bad things happening all the time that you can't do anything about, um, that your heart gets broken, that you know there's death and sickness. I think that's what she was talking about. Mm-hmm. When you're grown up, you will realize that all of these things exist. And that is miles away from where you are now as a child. Mm-hmm. You know, knowledge is flavoring everything. Right. You know, so I think I know what she meant now, you know, when she said, you know, just you wait, you're going to grow up and you'll, you'll see, you know, I think she meant you'll realize when you get, when your eyes start to take everything in as you get older, but you know, the world is, it's kind of hard, you know, and it's hard for everybody. Tell me, if you don't mind, why did you decide to be sober? What happened? What what was the... Oh, I mean, I didn't decide. I think I my friends kind of decided for me. Hmm. You know, I, had, I think I had been problematic for many, many years. And, and people would say, oh, that's just Brian. Hmm. You know, he likes to drink. And then, you know, the last few years of my drinking had just gotten really bad. It, it wasn't working anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the drugs and alcohol weren't working anymore to sort of kill the, the problems in my, in my head. And so what did I do? I just started drinking and using more. And my friends, uh, there was an incident that I don't want to go into, but you know, my friends were like, you know, it's just kind of time for you to get some help. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine literally hit me, struck me <laughs> in the back of like my head. Smacked you? Yeah. Like smacked me in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. and was like, you need to, 
get this fixed. So I, I went to I went to rehab, but I only went to shut everybody up. And I went because this sounds so terrible, but I went because I hated my job. Mm-hmm, yeah. There were two thoughts in my head. I've heard worse reasons. Oh God. I mean, there were two thoughts in my head. I was like, well, Hey, I will shut everybody up. And when I come out, I'll be able to drink like a normal person. You know, that was my thought process. And B, I'll get, I'll get a, you know, my insurance paid for it, uh, mostly for it. So I was like, I'll get some time away from work. I just, I hated my job yeah. so much. Uh-huh. So when I was there in rehab, talking to the counselors and, you know, we, they kept, they keep you busy in the rehab that I went to. Like you go to counseling then you have to go and you go to a workshop and then you go to another. I mean, I, it was not relaxing at all. Like, no, we like to think of activities. Oh my God, stop. Like, yeah, sorry, would, I, can't, I can't stop. They would like bang on the door at 6 a.m. Like, and you would have to get up. It was like a boot camp, you know. Uh-huh. It wasn't like a rest and relaxation situation. But as I was there, you know, sitting in groups in circles with, with people who were also, you know, problem drinkers and drug users, I realized like, shit, like everything everybody is saying is me. Yeah. You know, I was starting to connect, connect the dots, you know, cause every day a woman in one of my groups said, you know, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I think about is getting drunk. Mm-hmm. And that was, and if I were, were honest with myself, that was the first thing I thought about. I was going to work, but I, you know, my first thought was like, oh, I can't wait to work is over so I can get drunk. And then it got to the point where I was just bringing my alcohol to work mm-hmm. um, and putting it in my bottom desk drawer and just drinking uh, throughout the work day. So I didn't really decide to get sober. It, I decided to take a break. And then on that break, I realized that there was a, there was a huge problem, you know, with me and cocaine and, and alcohol and other drugs too. I started slipping into opioid use as well, which was becoming a problem. I mean, that's, that's the way it works. I mean, your brain is made to say, Oh, that was great, but now it's not good enough. Yeah. And now it's not, it wasn't good enough. And the more, the more, you know, booze and Coke and, and opioids I was shoving into the hole. It just was going, it was bottomless. Like it was just, you know, and it was just more and more and more. I mean, I would have died. I mean, let's just be real. Like I would have died had I not gone and had, you know, a few people not said some things in those, in those groups that took hold that I recognized. Because when I got there, obviously I was such a cliche, you know, I don't need to be here, you know, I, don't, I was, I was, I don't need to be here, boy. But after like maybe a couple of weeks, I was like, yeah, I, I definitely need to be here. And I didn't want to leave. Mm. It was time for me to go. I didn't want to go back out into like the cruel, cruel world. I was like, it's not, I'm not going to be able to handle it. But I, you know, I guess I just made a decision. And so here we are almost seven years later, which isn't a whole lot of time, but I'm proud of it. And I hope to go the rest of my life without needing drugs and alcohol again. Um, I've only been a parent seven years. Seven years feels like a long time to me. <laughs> so when you're what, you're, seven years is your oldest child or your youngest? Mm-hmm. Oldest. Okay. And she, yeah. girl, right? Yep. Yep. Two yeah. girls. So um, when she was born, that's when I decided to get sober. Yeah. That just, that, you know, that makes me feel really good. It should. That's a whole yeah. lifetime. Yeah, because if I met her, she would never know that I'm a drunk. 
You know, <laughs> it's really weird now too because I, I do have people in my life who never saw me drunk or high, and for most of my life, that's what I was known for. Oh, there's Brian, the drunk high dude. He's really annoying, and um, you know. But I do have people in my life that I've only met within the past seven years who don't know that version of me. I did an interview a few weeks ago with a, a friend of mine. Uh, who I've known for a long time, uh, who was doing a, a, a project and he wanted to interview me for. And he said, you know, I used to hate to see you coming. Oh. And it just went right. That comment just went right through me. I mean, he wasn't trying to be mean. Yeah. He was just saying like, I used to hate to see you coming. And I, and so it just reminded me like, you are, you should never, ever be that person again. I don't want to ever be the person that, groups of people hate to see coming and it was definitely groups of people who hated to see me coming like i was a terrible terrible drunk and addict not that there's a good drunken addict but like i was really bad yeah. well i think it depends on the stage and all the pieces right i mean there, there's certainly i don't i think it would be naive to say that there aren't points where people really enjoy they're they're in a place where they feel like this is great and it'll never end and mm -hmm. Or it, it it somehow heightens my personality to yeah. make me more or something. Um, yeah, people have the love affair. It's a love. It's a relationship. So you know. I used to think it heightened my personality. I used to think it made me sexier and more confident. Yeah. But like you know, if I were able to step outside of my body and look at myself drunk, it mm -hmm. I, I just you know I look like every other drunk. You know, kind, yeah. of, kind of sad and pathetic and loud and. Uh, pushy and and inappropriate and like you know all those things you know I and again I uh, my main goal right now is to distance myself from that person while still remembering him mm -hmm. you know uh, while still remembering that at any moment I could be him again but you know just to try to try to push a, try to see you know that life for what it was and create a new life for myself. Were you writing then? No, I didn't start writing until I went into rehab. <laughs> what? Yeah, I didn't. I went to rehab and um, it's, a, it's a really weird story. Like I went to rehab and of course they give you a roommate and my roommate, really nice guy, but he was a heavy guy. And so he was using a CPAP machine. And during the middle of the night, his thing would fall off and he snored like, like a tractor. Like he just had this and I couldn't sleep. And so I, they give you these little, you know, pads and paper in rehab. So you're supposed to write your epiphanies down, you know, Magic I, just started, I just started writing and th that's when I started writing. And when I got out of rehab, as I said, I was afraid to go out. And so I stayed in all the time because I was afraid if I left the house, I would pick up right where I left off. So I started writing on Facebook, just, you know, you know, I just continued writing from, from rehab. I was like, okay, and now I'll write some stuff on Facebook. Like, and a friend of mine said, you know, you should try to publish some of this writing. And I said, well, okay. And so he gave me like a link to a literary journal and said, here, submit some of your writing here. And I was like, okay. Didn't think anything would come of it, but they published it. Like the first thing I ever submitted like, was published wow. in um, the... That's Ocean not normal. 
It's and that's not normal. And I found out subsequently that it's really not normal because I have oh. so many rejections now. Yes. You know, uh-huh. for a while there, like I, I, and it felt really good. I was like, wow, I wrote something that somebody wanted to publish. And so since then, I've just been writing things and getting some things published and some things not. I've been performing on stage. I wrote a few journalistic pieces. So writing was completely an accident, like in the sense that I was in rehab. I was trapped in a room with a snoring man and had nothing better to do or nothing else to do, you know, and I was alone with my thoughts. So that's how writing started for me. And now I'm teaching writing. Uh It's just, it's been a really strange, you know, I've been really fortunate and, and it's been a really strange ride. Like, you know, I decided, oh, I'll go to community college. Um, and I did that. And one of my professors there said, you should write. And I was like, okay. It was just, my whole writing career has just been me saying okay to things. You know, yeah. I went to Chatham and I wrote there. And now I um, am teaching at the University of Pittsburgh in the writing. I, I think that when I was really little, I wrote a little bit. Uh, no, actually, I know that I did. I wrote, I used to write in journals um my sister had a diary and she was like i have no use for this thing and she gave it to me and i remember there was a long time where i wrote a lot actually as a kid i wrote, i filled up her diary and then i used, used to buy notebooks and just write in those notebooks and i would fill those up and then for some reason at some point i just stopped and i never thought about it again and then I spent a lot of years not writing and, and drinking. But I mean, I used to write a lot as a little kid, but it, it went away. You know, you get things come up. You know, I never thought about being a writer. And now here we are again. You know, I think, it, you know, people talk about the universe. Maybe the universe was like trying to tell me something, you know, that you should be writing more. I mean, what well, sounds like at some point you moved away from yourself, away from your voice. You wanted to numb. And that was what was working for you. And you can't write and numb at the same time. Right. And I also think that the sort of constraints of being a boy mm, mm, yeah, stopped me from writing. You know, the constraints of like masculinity stopped me mm-hmm. from writing. I think at some point, I don't know this for sure, but I think at some point somebody must have said like, what are you doing? Like, why are you writing? You should be playing football or, or baseball or something. I, I feel like that happened at some point because I just, I don't have a, a memory of deciding to stop, but I know that I stopped for a reason because when I was a little kid, I used to enjoy it. So I think well before, you know, I started self-medicating, I had stopped writing for, for other reasons, but I really enjoy it now. And I also hate it now. Like it's hard. What? I, I, oh. I have to do it. Like I'm, yes. I'm compelled to do it, right? Uh-huh. You know, I, I write something pretty much every day. But when it comes to the work and having to produce and, you know, I'm working on my second book now, I'm like, oh, I got to go sit down and like be quiet and write, and, you know, and pace, Focus up. Yeah, pace around my office until something comes to me. So I love it and I hate it at the same time. Can you tell me all about your first book? Because I can only pre-order it. You can only, pre- I can't tell you all about it because my agent oh, will. Right. Will okay. 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 Get, I, get it, I, get it, I get it. I get it. I get it. It's a memoir and it has to do with being an African-American male in America. It has to do with being a 
black gay African-American male in America. It also has to do with love and, and toxicity and addiction and uh, a lot of other things, colorism, a lot of things that I, the stories that I, that played into forming me into, you know, the mess that I am today. And, you know, in some ways it's also about like self-redemption, like trying to learn how to, to like myself in a world that has consistently told me in many ways and for many different reasons that I am unlikable, that I am unlovable. So yeah, that's what it's about. And, you know, writing it was not easy. Like a lot of the stories are not, are not ones that I'm proud of, but I do feel like they need to be told. And then in some way I feel like it's cathartic because I'm getting those sort of shameful things, you know, out, out there, you know, and then p- perfect strangers are going to be reading them. So can't hide from them anymore. So you know, it also helps me, I think, with my sobriety. One of the biggest platitudes in in uh, sobriety is like, you're as sick as your secrets. And you know, after this book comes out, many of my secrets will just be out there for anybody to read. So, yeah, that's what the book is about. I'm pretty proud of it, actually. And, you know, again, from going to picking up a pad and paper in rehab to now I have, a you know, a book deal. Mm-hmm. With a, you know, a, a not small publisher is pretty, uh, it's, it's kind of mind blowing because, you know, I think probably seven years ago, maybe eight, like I really was ready to die. Like I wanted to, and I had tried to in, in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so now I'm in this new place and although it's not easy, it's a better place. Mm-hmm. Well, and that publication piece is validation what in some ways that there's that validation, right? Somebody, well, you said it earlier when somebody wanted to publish your story to publish your book about you. That's like a double whammy, yay validation sandwich. Yeah. I mean, I, I do this thing where I keep it separate from me because I know I'm a train wreck, but the writing is not, you know, the writing is not a train wreck. It's, it's something that I can do, you know, it's a very strange thing. Like I have to separate it or it, or it becomes too much. You know, but then I go back later and I read things that I wrote. And, you know, if you write something and then you step away from it for a long time, you go back and read it. It's like somebody else wrote it. Yes. Um, And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Who wrote (laughs) that? Yeah. Whoever this dude is, he's incredible. (laughs) So I like doing that. But while it's in process, like I just, uh, you know, I just try to write the best that I can and hope that people enjoy it and hope that people get something. You know, I I write, but not about myself. And I've actually thought this week when I knew we were going to talk, I thought about that process of writing a memoir and how it's almost like a shadow self. I don't know how else to say this, but you've you've taken all these things. Have you ever read Harry Potter? Of course. Okay. So you know how Dumbledore has the pants. Like, that? like, like, like you're ashamed that you. Because people make fun of me about oh it. Oh my god! Lot. and I, it's, it's. De- I know J.K. needs to get some help yeah, right she's now. Got some bad press, like she's like Joe. Like, please read some book. I, I love you so much. Call me, please. Call someone yeah. to figure that out. Anyway, so yes, but. Harry Potter on its own. Okay. So I have to gather my thoughts. I was getting all excited for a second about Harry Potter and Dumbledore. So, you know, he pulls, he has the pensive and he pulls the thoughts out. Yeah. 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 
what an idea. I mean, as, as a therapist, that is my dream that I could swim in people's thought. <laughs> but writing a memoir to me is sort of like that. You're pulling the, these parts of you out. You said like, you're, they're not secrets anymore, Brian. I hate yeah. to tell you, they're, they're out there. They're out there. And so you pull it out and you put it in the bowl and you say, here world, do you want to swim in my bowl? And the book is the beautiful bowl that you made, right? Like you, you wrapped it in a package, but it's like almost a shadow self. Like, so I can understand the very important function of saying, yeah, but that's also separate from me. That's yes, because that could, I can understand my writing is not a memoir, but I feel that like that. Oh yeah. I wrote that. I I don't even know how to talk about it when people ask me, I don't even know how to, it's so private and solitary and, weird from my brain to the paper that if it were about me, I can understand. I just, I hear you saying, yep, that's my writing. It's out there. But at the same time, it's separate from me. Yeah. I have to do it. You know, when, when I get like calls, when like, we're editing the book right now and like, or we're, we're almost done completely editing it, but like I get the, hey. I get these edits back and you know, I can't read it. I'm like, okay, whatever. That's fine. Just whatever you want to do is fine. <laughs> Just get it away from me, you know, mm-hmm. um, because I don't want to keep, I don't want to keep swimming in it, you know, but obviously you have to go through it and make sure everything's correct and whatever, you know, but you know, the reason why I'm, I mean, I'm quickly moving on to the next one is because I'm going to say, okay, I'm done. I'm done with that book. Like, I don't want to read, I don't want to read these things that happened to this guy anymore, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, that that's all going to start over again next year when people start asking me about the book and we start promoting the book like it's going to be a long and arduous journey to talking about it writing a memoir is is hard because when you're writing it you have to feel all those things that you felt at the time again i think in order to write effectively like you have to physically feel mm-hmm. scared you have to physically feel you know lustful or malignant or or you know, you have to physically feel those things like in your body as you're writing them. Just for me, anyway. And then when I read them, I'm like, I'm going through it all over again. I'm like, this this book is traumatic. But at the same time, again, it's cathartic to just sort of get them, get it out there. And hopefully it'll do well and people will like it. And, then, and you know, and that it'll resonate with some people because at the center of the book, I think, is just this idea that, you know, you're worthy of love, no matter, you know, you're worthy of the entire human experience, you know, be whoever you are, whatever you are. And for a long time, I didn't think that I was because I grew up, uh, grew up in a white supremacist society. I grew up in a homophobic society. I grew up in a sort of masculinist society. And, you know, those things kept telling me that I wasn't good enough. And that's like, I think, the thrust of the memoir. How do you get to a place where the whole world is telling you that your existence is wrong and, and get to a place where you, you feel good about your existence? Because every message that I had received growing up was one where I wasn't, I wasn't born right. You know, you know, uh, I needed to consult with God to, to make myself right to, you know, and, and yeah, so that's basically what it's about. I'm hoping that uh, it resonates with people. When I started writing it, I thought, well, this is a book for black gay, like, get black gay boys. But as I was writing it, I thought, you know, I think probably everybody feels this way, you know, from time to time. 
or just more consistently, where the world's telling you you're not good enough, particularly if you're an outlier, you know, in, in a society that promotes whiteness and promotes heterosexuality and, 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 you know, not just those things, but also socioeconomically, like we grew up, I grew up with no money, mm-hmm. but it also makes you feel like, you know, you're less than. So it, it kind of tackles those subjects. I sort of am coming to this place where, I mean, that's why I called the podcast what I did, that, that, that in that I have never met anyone who didn't understand what it felt like to be an outlier. But so that's great. And that's what I keep trying to tap into because that's a place that I believe we can all connect. That feeling of fear and aloneness and what's next and where will I fit in? What I think happens then though, is because of all the pieces you mentioned, all the identity pieces and more, people lose their connection with that feeling mm-hmm. or they cover it up or they pretend like it's not there or they're defensive or whatever. And then you can't connect. You can't connect unless you're open and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And to be open and vulnerable, you have to connect with that part of yourself that has been an outlier. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to do to, you know, yeah. um, to embrace the part of yourself that, uh, that you've been taught to be ashamed of for your whole life. You know, I still think I, I, you know, I like to consider myself to be open-minded and accepting, accepting of all people, but I still have homophobic moments. I still have, you know, racist moments. I still have sexist moments, you know, and the, you know, the thing about it right now is I, I recognize when they come up, you know, or I'm willing to be challenged uh, on some of them. I think that's what's different. But, you know, for a lot of my life, I was just a complete, completely unexamined. And I just did things without thinking about how they affected other people. And I said things without thinking about how they affected other people. So I'm trying to be a better, I'm trying to be better about that you know, and to learn from my mistakes and to also at the same time, be confident, you know, Mm -hmm. um, there's a real balancing act there, you know, to try to be confident in yourself while still respecting other people. So where you're not taking any shit, but you're Mm -hmm. being like respectful. I'm trying to learn how to walk that line. Yeah. Well, Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> I get super angry on the inside. I mean, I try. That's a lot of energy. Yeah. At the same time, people don't learn if you yell at them. Yeah. So it's a fine line. Okay, so tell me what's love like in your life right now. Oh, God. Yeah. My favorite topic, sex and love. Yeah. <laughs> You mean, you mean like romantically? I don't care. I don't care. I want to hear about sex and love or love and sex. I don't care. I, I am currently not engaging with anybody romantically for a very specific reason. I want to know. I think that because of the way I used it in the past, mm-hmm. I'm wary about how I would use it in the present. I used to sort of use men in relationships and sex as an escape, you know, or I, I dated particular kinds of men because I thought they were more powerful than me and that they would protect me. Or, you know, it was, you know, lots and lots of drunken one night hookups. Uh, I have never until like, I had never until I got sober, had sex uh, sober. You know, my entire sexual history was, was fueled by alcohol and drugs. 
And so I am learning how to do that, how to be present. You know, I think I need a lot to, to do a lot of work on myself before I even think about engaging somebody romantically. And then I also wonder, like, do I even really need that? Like, at this point in my life, do I really need some man around my house? Like, uh, okay, I'm sorry, but you know, I can't. Okay. Do I think, do you need anyone? No. But here's what I would say. I mean, sex is nice. Sex is awesome. And you're, you're 50 and you're starting to scare me a little bit with your talking. It sounds a little bit like, oh, because, you know, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> I disagree with that. And what, okay. But we're talking about the same thing again, which is vulnerability and openness, right? right. Do you need a man around your house? I don't know. I, I love my husband, but I asked myself that. Right. So, I mean, I, it's a give and take. And I think what you're sort of struggling with is, am I open to the, the struggle that a relationship brings, right? Yeah. No matter what, the energy that it costs me. Yeah. And am I wanting to do that balancing thing, dance? Yes or no? That's Right. Is that right? That's, that's absolutely right. You know, and, and I think that, uh, you know, no, no perfect man is going to show up at my doorstep and be like, I'm yours. You know, all relationships take work. Am I willing to expend that energy again? You know, I have been a boyfriend one time before I was a horrible boyfriend um, to this person who I, who fortunately is still a friend of mine, but I was rotten. It was when I was like drinking. So I have that kind of like baggage and guilt around it. And right now, right now, I really do think I genuinely, genuinely just enjoy my time alone. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to, when I, everything is like this before and after with me, like when I used to drink and do drugs, you couldn't keep me in my house by myself. Like mm-hmm. it felt wrong to be in my house by myself. I constantly needed the the noise and the people around me and you know and in the end i feel like it was just a distraction from deeper issues that were going on now you know after you get sober you lose all those people or a lot of those people that you out with um there are more nights spent at home uh with a cup of tea uh, and a book and you know i i like that version of myself you know i have my core friends that i love a great deal but as far as bringing romance into it i think I don't, I just don't know. I used to, I used to dream about it. I used to fantasize yeah. about it, you know, mm-hmm. about finding this guy who was just going to be perfect for me and we would be so cute together. But again, that's sitcom love, you know, that's, that's like moonlighting love, you know, the, yeah. the will they or won't they, it's all, it's all, none of it bears any resemblance to actual real life relationships. No, but okay. That's true. But there is oxytocin involved in just having someone to put your feet on (laughs) at night. Like, you know, just like strict your foot over. Okay. You know, that feeling at night sometimes like, ah, anxiety is the name for it. And you just put your foot over and And okay. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody you can trust somebody who also likes tea or coffee. I don't know. In our house, we have two coffee makers. We cannot agree on the coffee situation. So there's two different types and it's like this low key argument every day about that. Um, so, I mean, you know, I don't know. Do I'm not, I'm not a rosy, rosy person. Um, How long have you been married? What? 
Uh, we have been married eight years. Yeah, we've been married. See, you know, that's again, I think that that's wonderful. Um, (laughs) For you? (laughs) you, I don't know. You know, I mean, there's the fear, obviously, of, you know, getting older and and dying alone, as they say. But I think right now, you know, I want to focus on getting more emotionally intelligent. I want to focus on maybe a little bit on my career, you know, but I have to tell you, like, when, when I got my book deal, I thought to myself, because it was like a big moment, like they, yeah. we, we got this contract and it was like more zeros than I had ever seen on anything, you know, and I was so happy. And then I, th- and then I thought I should have, I should have somebody to call, you know, I should have somebody to, you know, there was obviously my family, my mom and, and um, my aunt and my cousins, but like, I thought, you know, I should really have somebody, you know, who would really be jumping for joy with me, you know, not that they weren't, but I thought that I felt like in that moment, like something was missing, you know, but again, I only want, I I can tell that I only want the good things from a relationship. And I do not know if I am emotionally mature enough to, to deal with the bad things that come with the relationship. And then you have another person you have another person. They're not a compliment to you. They're like a whole other human being. Although I can sit and fantasize all day about this dream guy, you know, who knows? Who knows? And I don't want to put, I don't want to put too much emphasis on it right now. I'm finally proving to myself that I can do things by myself. I'll leave it alone. But can I say one more thing? Are you trying to set me up with somebody? Is there somebody that you have in mind right now? Not yet, but <laughs> I'm working here, Brian. Like I could feel it. Okay. I'm willing to go on a date. I'll tell you that. Okay. Okay. Well, so, you just you know, open the door. Do your work. Uh, okay. So, you know, there's this theory. I have mixed feelings about it, but I want to float it out there. There's this theory that in relationships, we do development that we can't do alone. It's very contrary to the idea that we need to develop ourselves and then meet with someone. But mm-hmm. basically the idea is, you know, in uh, in chemistry class, how you have those crucibles, that little thing where you pour the stuff. I'm not a chemistry person. There's this little bowl that can hold all the shit. And right. so you can mix different. It's called a crucible. Right, right. So there's this book called Reconstructing the Sexual Crucible. Anyway, the idea is that relationship is a crucible and it holds the mixing of people and all the things that happen in that space. And I have mixed feelings about that. I think you do enormous growth when you're by yourself, especially if you're feeling like uncertain growth happens. So, but I just think that's an interesting concept that, you know, we grow when we're alone, we grow when we're together. We grow, yeah. If you choose to, you grow all the time. I have no doubt that somebody involved in my life in, in, on an intimate level might enhance me as a better person. You know, you do things, sometimes somebody's there to cheer you on and somebody's there to advise you. But my worry is, you know, what do I want from this person? You know, I think at the state that I'm in right now and the state that I've been in for most of my life is I, I can be kind of a draining influence. I don't want to do that to somebody, you know. I think there's an amount of there's a, an amount of solipsism that goes along with being a writer, and there's a certain amount of selfishness too. Maybe that's not about being a writer. That's maybe just who I am at this point. <laughs> um, you know, I, I 
I'm pretty self-involved. Um, and I think that that's a, you know, it exhibited itself in my alcoholism and my addiction. That was self-involvement. But I think now I'm self-involved in a different way. And my anxiety is very self-involved. So I don't know if that's the, a good environment in which to bring some poor, unsuspecting dude who's just trying to, like, meet somebody. I'm not trying to do that to him. Brian lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I am from, and there is a really awesome organization there called Steel Smiling. Uh, Julius Boatwright started it, and I got to meet Julius when we both did TEDx Talks in Pittsburgh together. If you are interested in, uh, if you live in Pittsburgh or if you don't, look them up, Steel smilingpgh.org, doing some really cool work focusing on African-American mental health. And if you don't live in Pittsburgh, well, obviously you could still look them up, but there are so many resources and so much work being done around the country. Please reach out if you're listening and you feel like, oh, it'd be great if I could uh, talk to somebody and Um, You know, you can uh, look on Psychology Today has all sorts of therapists. It's a great starting place to find someone that could fit your needs. And I want to let people know that if you meet a therapist and you feel like you don't like them, don't keep going. You don't. It's a relationship. So sure, give it, you know, um, one or two tries. Excuse me. But if the chemistry isn't there, then please move along. Make sure that you're getting your needs met and that your therapist can meet your needs when we're thinking about multiculturalism and anti-racism. It is valid to find someone who you feel you can talk to about all of the pieces of your life, what you might be experiencing um, and what you certainly are experiencing if you are a person of color. So please reach out, find uh, someone that you can speak to, because as I said earlier, racial trauma is real. And um, find those things. If you need anything, you can reach out and I'll try to help you. Good luck and take care. Um, you know, I wanted to talk about just you know, African-American mental health, which is another thing in the book as well. You know, I just wanted to touch on the fact that African-American culture isn't one that, and I think that with, with a lot of minority cultures, we don't talk about mental health, but particularly with African-Americans, the things that we go through and, and we endure and see and experience in America are in many ways traumatic and in many ways anxiety producing in many ways, distressing. Um, and I just know that when I went to rehab, it wasn't just the fact that, you know, I didn't have drugs and alcohol in rehab. You know, the, the detox was more than just about the physical substances in my body. It was also, you know, just coming to terms with the fact that there was stress in my body from just being black in America. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if that's one thing that I can communicate to African-Americans, like, it's not about being strong all the time. You know, we are only human beings and there's a lot of lore around how strong we are, which we are, but like at the same time, we're only human. And I just want to sort of promote the idea of going to get help, going to seek therapy, you know, maybe medication for depression and anxiety. I mean, those things have helped me immensely. And so that's what I wanted to say, you know, because 
you know, I was on a path to, to killing myself, whether it happened by accident or whether I did it by my own hand. And I really owe the fact that I'm doing well today to just addressing my mental health and uh, addressing it specifically as an African-American man, addressing it specifically as a gay man. Um, and yeah, that's basically what I, I kind of wanted to say as well. I'm really, uh, I don't know what word to use. I, I'm glad you said that because obviously it's not the same if I say it, right? Like, so for a lot of reasons, <laughs> me being therapist, me being white, but we know that there's the, first of all, racial trauma is trauma and mm. th there's not enough. It's not even enough. There's, there's, there's no discussion of that. It's so little that I'll say it's zero, right? How it's impacting people, how it impacts how people see themselves and see each other and see and, and how entire worldviews are, are created. But then there's the second piece. So you talked about the trauma, but the second piece is that we know that African-American people, people aren't seeking mental health care and that it's not available yeah. and, and that there aren't enough black therapists yeah. and it would it could you and I have a great relationship if you came to me for therapy? Sure, but would it be as good if I was black? No, it wouldn't mm -hmm. because there are some things that I wouldn't be able to understand. And there's a ton of research that shows that in general that black people do better when they get to see a black therapist. Yeah, and there's not enough black therapists. Yeah, um, um absolutely. And in the attitudes, I think you know we've been we've been sort of taught that. You know this uh, this idea of like black strength, and I do believe it exists, but I think we've been taught that that's all upon which we should rely, and I think that leads to a lot of our mental undoing, our emotional undoing. And black therapists are in short supply, but I th I just want to encourage anybody you know if, uh, who's African American that if you're feeling stress, it's not because you're weak, you know. Uh, if you're feeling anxiety, it's not because you're weak. It's because you live in a society that uh, where everything's orchestrated to make you feel stressed and to make you feel weak and to make you so they can keep pushing harder and harder and harder. So all I want to say is like, you know, get go see someone if you're feeling uh, out of sorts. Black mental health is a very integral part to Black Lives Mattering, and we need to... Uh, uh, start addressing that, I think, in the community, the African-American community. That's all. Welcome to Ask Dr. Kelly. This time, the question is, is therapy better if you are like your therapist? So... That's a great question, and it fits with what we talked about today. However, the answer is, it depends. Have I, as a therapist, had every experience that my patients have had? Absolutely not. Can I find empathy, and can we find a great healing space together? Yes, usually. If you have a great relationship with your therapist, you trust them, you have good rapport, you respect one another, that's called common factors and it's extremely important and it's one of the biggest components of whether or not therapy will be successful. It accounts for 80 plus percent of whether or not therapy is considered successful by the patient and the therapist. However, at the same time, it's also true, as I mentioned earlier, that we know that when a, an African-American person seeks therapy, 
that they tend to feel more connected with an African-American therapist. So that is also true. Now, we also mentioned that there's a real dearth of therapists out there who are black. What should people do? Well, that's why I'm telling you both sides of the story, right? You're not going to likely find a therapist who meets every single checkbox, but you do need to think about what is most important to you in the moment. And if the identity, the, the race, um, the cultural background, et cetera, of the therapist is the most important thing to you on the list, then it's worth finding somebody who meets that criteria for you. And you can do that when you're seeking out someone. There's you know, nothing wrong with being specific about that because finding a good fit of a therapist, as I said, is one of the most important factors in feeling successful in your work together. So again, both things are true. Therapist doesn't have to be just like you or in, in any way or experience all the things that you've experienced in life, but it kind of depends on what you're focusing on and what you feel like you need as a person in that moment, whether or not the relationship's gonna be successful. So just a couple extra pieces to think about. Your therapist doesn't have to be just like you, but if that piece and whatever piece that might be, it could be race, culture, other aspects, maybe they've experienced something you've experienced, is super important to you in that moment, and might be the focus of some of your work, then yes, it might be very important. But otherwise, that connection between you and your therapist is the most important thing. So get out there and find somebody and get talking and connect up because there's nothing more magical than that special connection that you can find in therapy. <laughs>